Welcome to No Shit, There I Was. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Let's kick off this episode with a quick thinking exercise. Yeah, I know, this is your you time where you don't have to think, but bear with me. Picture an office of any middle manager or above, anywhere in the US. What are some things you find in there? Family photos? Probably. A Dilbert or Farside cartoon highlighting some not-so-subtle irony of work? There's a good chance. You'll almost certainly find a dusty copy of some sort of professional reference, you know, just in case of emergencies. But one thing I almost guarantee you'll find in any office you can think of is some sort of book on leadership. Maybe it's written by some titan of industry or military legend of a bygone era. Or maybe it's a profound lesson by someone charging forward in the modern market. Chances are unfortunately huge that it's some grifter selling a secret leadership sauce they mixed up by sounding like an expert. I guess the point is this. Leadership is an incredibly over-publicized and wildly misunderstood subject. Literally, if anyone tells you they are an expert, it's okay to walk away from that conversation. You can take any experienced leader alive today and it is guaranteed you can find a situation to put them in where they will fail. Leadership is also a subject where people have very long-held beliefs that need to be challenged periodically because people and societies change. That's why this episode we're talking to my friend Charn McAllister. Charn and I met at West Point. Our friendship born of a common taste in pop-punk bands from the early 2000s and our involvement in the Honor Committee. Today, Charn is a management professor who regularly studies dynamics of management and leadership, then publishes his findings in articles and books, which I highly recommend. In this episode, we're going to discuss two intriguing topics he has written about recently. The first is the importance of likability in a leader, which I assure you goes against some central lessons in my leadership upbringing. The second is about how any leader who truly values the well-being of their followers needs to understand and be active in the politics of their organization. He brings these lessons to you through really great stories of his time as an aviation officer in the Army. I believe these are incredible lessons which need to be learned by anyone on a path to be a leader, determined to be the best they can be for the folks they intend to serve. Please listen and enjoy. Hell, maybe even learn a little. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a show committed to sharing the stories and experiences of those in and around the military for everyone to hear. So please, relax and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. There's little doubt that a key part of being a team is looking like one. Name a team movie, anyone. I bet it goes like this. After the prescribed team fight, the coach speech about coming together, and a gritty training montage, the culminating event before the showdown is almost always getting those sweet, sweet threads that put the finishing touch on making everyone ready to go take on the bad guys. Can't you hear it? Quack, quack, quack. But what if Gordon Bombay doodled out a duck on his legal pad and said, yeah, that's good enough. Hawks probably win. What if a certain football team slaps blue marble on their helmets and just called it a day for the most important game of the year? Eh, they probably get shut out. Don't let this happen to you. When you need to outfit your team or unit with gear that inspires victory, work with Emblem Athletic. They will work with you on a custom design which is dyed into hand-sewn gear that will never crack or fade. And there's no extra charge for the design. You'll find simple pricing for your gear in custom store from which your organization can order for themselves. The best part? You get a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go to emblemathletic.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Desert Tactical Fitness. The more things change, the more things stay the same. You don't have to look too far to find someone gripe about op tempo. 
If you're heading on deployment, a training center, or building international relations with combined training, you stay on the move without access to a gym or equipment so you can get up and stay up for the ACFT. The solution is easier than you think. Desert Tactical Fitness has a tactical mobile gym solution designed for your needs. With eight sandbags of varying weights, there are a near endless combination of exercises you can create a workout with in any situation. They're super tough and they travel easy. Just empty them out and toss them in the tough box for transport, whether you're on the move for work or you're stuck at home during quarantine. Check out and buy the Tactical Mobile Gym at DesertTacticalFit.com and follow Desert Tactical Fitness on Facebook or Instagram. So just a quick heads up, I recorded this actually back in April with Charn. And there's been a few changes of what's been happening with him since then. So just hang on till the end of the episode and we'll give you an update on him. All right. So, Charm McAllister, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited about talking to you for many, many reasons. But most of all, because we know each other pretty well. How do we know each other? Well, we were at uh, West Point together. And, you know, one of the funniest stories, I think, is I was a firstie. And uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, Michelle, and I were walking down the staircase into Thayer by the library. And uh, there was possibly a little bit of uh, PDA going on. She was giving me some back scratches, back tickles. And in walks Joey Snowden uh, from up on top of the staircase and says, man, I love back t- or back scratches. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was, uh, we were uh, on reps together. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of time together at the academy. Yeah, yeah. Back scratches are one of the uh, things that, myself and my dad really share so <laughs> well she was really good at it and that's why we got married i mean i was that was a that was a key key uh key decision in in, in our marriage <laughs> well i'd say that's an excellent ingredient to a good marriage is I, I back scratches yeah but yeah so it's kind of funny i'd uh we were in you know on the honor committee together i, I never really talked to anyone about that uh anymore it's kind of a strange thing i don't know why but it actually took up a lot, a fair amount of my life in the last two years of, of being at school. It's a, it's a huge requirement. I think, you know, especially, you know, as like a reg honor rep, um, you know, you're constantly looking over cases and you're very involved. I mean, you're meeting with the, I mean, I met with the soup and the calm multiple times. And, right. you know, for me, I think it was, I think it was a good experience overall, but it definitely fed into some of the idealism that I have or had at least. Um, Mm -hmm. And that time it's hard to talk about it because I feel like I was a different person then. And I think uh, my was much more black and white. And I think some of the, the ways I I viewed things back then may have been a a little bit too black and white. I've been accused of that throughout my time. Um, And that probably there should have been a little bit more understanding and maybe compassion, but you know, the Academy is a different place. And so, perhaps there was a time for that, but I look back now and I sometimes worry that I may have been somewhat of a jerk about those things. Uh, maybe there was a better way to handle, you know, certain, uh, interactions with the, uh, you know, people in the honor system. It's possible. I mean, I wouldn't be too hard on myself, but I, I do feel like sometimes I was that way, but sometimes I was a little more understanding. It's really kind of interesting that you say that too, because the honor system is really kind of running a mini legal system within the academy that is, from a day-to-day standpoint is really run by cadets and overseen by by the officers the the advisors that are that are there and it's it's really interesting in that way when i reflect back you had a bunch of 19 to 22 year olds 23 year olds that were all running this little legal system that really had big impacts on on other cadets lives and you know they could they could be kicked out of the academy and, and then have to go 
you know, figure something else out. That had a huge impact, especially for people with no life experience. I mean, I'll say uh, I was meeting with a commandant uh, over a cadet who had been found, uh, you know, guilty. Um, and, you know, I was noting that he never made eye contact with the commandant during his, you know, plea for mercy. And when he left the room, uh, myself and the honor captain recommended to the commandant that he be removed uh, from the academy um, because he just didn't have the guts to even make eye contact. Um, again, this is, you know, 20 year old Charn. The commandant very astutely noted that this cadet was from uh, a Middle Eastern culture and that potentially he was not making eye contact because the general was in fact a superior and perhaps he was trying to show some type of deference. Right. Um, and it was really interesting because for me, as this very idealistic 20 year old, I was like, yeah, get this guy out. He can't even make eye contact with you. When a wiser, <laughs> uh, you know, more experienced individual is like, ah, let's, let's, let's take a step back. And so I think you're right. We had a really big role. Um, and perhaps there is room for that idealism, especially from the cadet side, but that's why you have the officers there to kind of give a little bit more perspective. Right. Well, so getting on the topic of what we're talking about today, you went through the same experience that I did. You graduated from school. You went into the military. You did something a little bit different than that. You got to go fly helicopters, but way better um, than rocking. Wait, yeah. as, a, as a disclaimer to everyone else, you get very far, very fast, a um, lot, lot less work, but kudos to you guys. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but since you've been out, you've gone and, and taken on a different role. So tell me about that. What do you do now? Yeah, so I'm a professor of management at Northeastern University. So uh, pretty much I study the workplace, the people within it. Uh, my focus areas are, you know, interpersonal mistreatment. So, you know, bullying and abuse in the workplace. Uh, I study stress and then I study politics. So I think, you know, three things that were kind of informed uh, by my time you know, at the academy and uh, in the military. Very cool. Very cool. So what is it that you brought you to that? Yeah, it was uh, my lovely wife again. You know, I was, I think in my first deployment and, uh, you know, I gave her a call and she was trying to think about what she wanted to do uh, after her time in the military and what uh, we both wanted to do. And she said, hey, you ever think about being a professor? And I was like, I think teaching would be fun. Uh, at that point, and even during my second deployment, uh, you know, I would teach uh, soldiers uh, GRE skills so they could get, you know, uh, you know, different jobs that they may have wanted in the military. Um, so I really like teaching. I didn't really understand what research was, um, but I knew that to get into good schools, you had to want to do research. So I took, I took the bet that I, I would probably like it. So, uh, you know, I said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to do research. And thankfully um, that was the right answer. And I was able to get a position at Florida state uh, as a PhD student and my wife did the same. So it was great to, you know, after like, like most people in our positions, um, especially dual career by our fifth wedding anniversary, we've been on different continents for three of those five years. So when we showed up at Florida state, we asked to share an office and everyone was like, ah, that's going to, that's going to go poorly. You're going to end your relationship. Like PhD students under a lot of stress and, you know, sharing an office is a terrible idea, but, um, I think, you know, a PhD student uh, compared to, you know, life in the military is not stressful. And, you know, sharing an office was an amazing time uh, to make up for lost time that we had, uh, we had not had together. Well, yeah. And especially when you're a PhD student and you're probably spending a lot of time reading, researching, writing. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird gig. I mean, you are constantly overloaded with work. It's very much like West Point uh, in that sense. Your classes are, you know, sometimes three or four people uh, in size, so there's no hiding. Uh, which in many ways, I feel like West Point is there's never any real hiding going on. Um, it's true. And so I think you know, everyone always says West Point prepares you for for so many things, and I would say it really prepared me for the PhD program. Um, so it, it could be stressful, but I will tell you. Uh, I still look back on it as the best five years of my life. I had, you know, the very best professors who were treated me as a colleague, not as a student. And I think my wife felt the same way. And so we felt, you know, very fortunate to graduate from there. And we both secured jobs at Northeastern University here in Boston, Massachusetts. So it's nice. been a been a good run so far. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, one of the reasons that really reached out to you and I wanted to talk to you was an article that popped up. Obviously, we kind of get into this new world where you know, we keep up with people through Facebook, even though I know sure. you and, and we're friends. You, like, you know, things about me that you could, just, you know, when we were talking before this, you're pointing out the fact that I was in a, a band at school. That's true. Um, I was wondering if you had done the intro music to your podcast, man. That was when I first heard it. That was my first thought. I was wondering if Hello Courage was making a uh, comeback. Definitely not. Definitely not. But, um, <laughs> But we keep up with people through Facebook. One of the things that popped up was, you know, I went to to business school and read, you know, Harvard Business Review articles when I get a chance. And one of the things that popped up was this uh, this article. And I look in the by line and it says Charm McAllister in there. And uh, it's about why likable leaders seem more effective. So it's a really, really interesting article and has so many components to it. But is, is leadership studies a, a big part of what you do? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly enough, and, you know, just tell the truth, I, I wouldn't consider myself a leadership researcher. I mean, when I, when I came into the PhD program, I was fully planning on studying leadership. I mean, 100%. I mean, that's our background and I knew leadership mm -hmm. yeah. uh, fit into this, you know, as, as a funny story, there are PhDs in leadership. My, my PhDs in business administration with a focus on uh, organizational behavior and human resources, but Man, I, I told my wife, my lovely wife, who's much smarter than I am, that I wanted to get a PhD in leadership. And she's like, no, you want a PhD in management. Now, she had gotten her MBA, so she knew. But because West Point had, you know, quote unquote, brainwashed me so much, I was like, I could never study management. I have to study leadership because I'm not a yeah. manager. I'm a leader. Um, right. But fortunately, she convinced me uh, appropriately that going to a business school and focusing on management would be good. It's particularly good because when I actually got there, I was a little disillusioned with the leadership research. You know, there's so much published on leadership each year in the popular press world. And Definitely. even in, I mean, I'll throw it out there real quickly. I tell my students, if you type leadership, just that word into Google, you get about 2.8 billion results, right? For reference, if you type in chess, which is a game that has been around since essentially human existence, there's only 246 million hits, right? So we're talking about like... Wow. It's, it's just ridiculous how many people are writing about this. And academics, in my opinion, are no exception. Uh, I think there are, you know, we looked in our article, I think we identified like 30 to 40 different leadership styles, maybe more um, mentioned in Harvard Business Review and other outlets. And, you know, there's a lot of similarity, a lot of overlap. And I there's a lot of theorizing and, and I get it. But my concern is that every time you, you tell someone, hey, you need to be an ethical leader or you need to be a servant leader or you need to be a transformational leader, you're telling leaders to do all of these things and you're not really giving them a chance to develop. And so I kind of dropped the leadership really in my first year and started focusing on uh, topics like stress um, and topics like uh, interpersonal mistreatment and in politics. And then an opportunity came along 
to work on this study in particular, which was to kind of show that there are some serious problems in the leadership domain, at least uh, within the management field. Yeah. Wow. So accurate in, in what you're saying. Leadership is a really, really, it's a moneymaker. You know, you, it is. Yeah, you, you sling out that you're going to talk about leadership or you're, you know, you're going to somehow change the way people think about leadership. And I, I can't tell you how many people that, you know, I come across in the business world that will throw out, you know, different buzzwords about leadership and I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's so-and-so, you know, that's John Maxwell, that's, that's blah, 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 because they're just used so constantly, but people don't really, it, it's interesting to hear them sling the, sling the lingo, but when you watch them in practice, they don't, you know, they don't really do the same things. And to me, I, I kind of have a pessimistic view of that of that entire publishing industry, and in that it seems like it's a lot of snake oil salesmen and that get people to believe in something, but maybe not so much practice it. So anyway, the reason why I liked what you had to say was it's a little bit counterintuitive to the way that we were brought up and, and I guess our, our leadership education on its face. But when you really dig down into it, it's like, okay, well, that is actually, that makes a lot of sense in, in the, in the way that, that we were brought up in some of the more subtle, some of the more subtle art of leadership. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it, right? Like you hit it on the head is the art of leadership. I think, you know, West Point uh, tries to teach the science, the practice and the art. And obviously it's, you know, one of the best in the world at doing that. But it's, it's much easier to teach the science, I think, of leadership, or at least the practice of uh, very basic leadership skills. And I don't think likability has been built into that in the past. I mean, if you think about, you know, the archetypes of the great leaders, the MacArthur's, even the Schwarzkopf's, um, you know, they're hard charging leaders that aren't focused on likability. And, you know, I don't, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that in the past, but I think good leaders recognize the context they're in and that, you know, sometimes the situation is changing. And, you know, what we need to make clear right up front is that we're not saying that leaders need to be liked or they need to be adored, right? Like you're not trying to be likable for the sake of you feeling like you have friends, right? Like that is, as I mentioned in the article, that's like a very Faustian bargain, right? This idea that I'm going to be friends with my subordinates and that will make me a better leader. Cause we know that's, that is the road to ruin, right? I mean, there's no stories about leadership end well when that's the case. This is about being liked uh, or or being likable, I guess is probably more the best way to put it. Being likable in such a way that your subordinates feel like they can form relationships with you as opposed to being standoffish, closed off. I think this is the idea. And this is what I think people want nowadays is you just don't need to be a jerk to everyone, which in many ways, you know, West Point and a lot of, you know, just leadership books in general idolize that type of leadership. I mean, you look at Steve Jobs biography and, you know, this guy was a stone cold jerk in every way, shape and form. And people idolize that and try to emulate what he did, but that possibly wasn't the best way to do things. So, you know, it's hard to second guess him, but you know, that's kind of what, you know, the article itself is about is looking at what are these things that underlie, or is there something that underlies all these different leadership theories, right? So we found that we, we replicated all these studies There are about 3000 people we, we collected data on. And in the past, if someone said, Hey, this person somewhat transformational as a leader, and there's a theory of transformational leadership, it also would come to pass that they were also considered an ethical leader. And the problem there is if someone rated someone on one thing, it's unlikely that they were also a transformational, also an ethical leader, also a servant leader. And so there was so much overlap. We said, there's got to be something somewhere, some shape or form that 
underlies all these leadership theories. And we determined that it's probably leader-like ability, which is do the subordinates like their leader? And if so, they're probably going to rate them as better leader. And and that yeah. was that's the very basic finding that we were we were trying to you know push here. Right. There's just so much behind you know what you talk about with, with likership. I guess is the the word that that gets used in here is. I think one of the things you, know, you talked about the archetypes, but one of the things that was brought up with us or, or kind of instilled in us, well, it's not about being liked. You're there exactly. to make decisions and, and people need to respect those decisions and follow them. But you know that, that sounds very nice when you're, I think when you are growing up and you learn about this theory and you kind of put some of it into practice, you find out when you're leading peers very quickly that you know, you're more apt to just kind of listen and go because all of you are trying to get in together. So there's a kind of a buy-in principle of, okay, well, I'm going to buy in because when it's my turn, I want this person to kind of follow what I say too. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in practice, when you kind of get out, get out into the real world, that's not the way it is. You actually have to build relationships. You have to invest and you have to say, hey, well, it's not about exactly what I say and you're going to do what I say. It's about I need you to trust that when I say something that I'm looking out for the best interest of you and the mission that we're trying to accomplish. I, I think that hits it on the head, man. I mean, I, you know, you talk about forming relationships and I think that's the key. Again, I'll hit this again and again, because this is the one critique I constantly get on this is, you know, we don't need leaders trying to be liked. And again, I, it's not about trying to be liked. It's, it's not about wanting people to like you. It's about being likable, which is a really low standard. It's this idea right. that people want to form those relationships with you. And, you know, there are situations where, you know, this is the lowest priority, right? Like likability, right? You need to get mm -hmm. the mission done, especially in extreme circumstances like we faced in the military. But for the 99% of the time that we're acting as leaders, there's nothing wrong with forming a relationship. And, you know, to me, likability is a pretty low standard. It's treating people with respect yeah. and showing that you care about them. You know, I'll give you a brief story. I was I came back from a deployment and I had I was the HHT commander at the end of my second deployment and so I was taking over all the the people from Rear D right uh, they yeah. were kind of being integrated back in and I had one guy who during his time on Rear D had had some serious issues he had his he was separated from his wife but his wife was very caring came on to base and they were driving around with their son. They got to the top of the, one of these hills on Fort Riley, and he basically said, pull over. The wife pulled over. He said, get out of the car. He got in the car, <laughs> left them on the top of the hill, and drove away, right? So not wow. a key move. He ended up getting a DWI. While he was on rear D still, I mean, this is one of my favorite stories, he disappeared. He, although he was on an order to stay on base, he was supposed to not be drinking, the commander, rear D commander, and uh, one of the NCOs goes to a local strip club. They find him double fisting two, two choice drinks. He sees mm -hmm. the commander, drops both drinks, and like sprints out the back door, right? The commander and the NCO give chase. This guy is running down the road and literally gets on the ground and like shuffles under a truck, right? Wow. And they see him and they're like, like if, if you have kids, Joey, so you know, like, Kids at one point cover their eyes and yeah. when you can't, when they can't see you, they think you can't see them. Right. And so like, right. Here's this HHT rear D commander and his NCO talking to the bottom of the vehicle. Like, Hey, please come out. We know you're under there. And he like, won't talk back to them. Like he's hiding. <laughs> right. So like long story short, I take this guy over and you know, this is not a person that everyone really wants to treat with respect. And he did not get a lot of that. 
But my philosophy is, you know, look, I'm going to, I'm going to treat this person as a human being. Like he's made mistakes. I'm not going to be, you know, his buddy, but I'm going to treat him like a human being. And, you know, everyone's going through things. He'd had several deployments before this, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. So I treated him well. He was, you know, getting ready for UCMJ action. His mother started showing up to my office to convince me that, you know, he should not have severe UCMJ action, which eventually progressed to her bringing in childhood photos of him to me to show that he was a good person. So this was getting like very personal. We're getting close to the UCMJ, uh, the real UCMJ action in the trial. And he bolts, he goes AWOL and he's gone for like three or four days, maybe longer. It's, It's been a while. Not the best look. No, not the best look before this is going down. He eventually gets in touch with the chaplain. Chaplain goes out to meet with him. While there, he brandishes a gun. Chaplain comes back, reports everything to us. He's gone off the grid for another three or four days, like no contact. And then his mother, I went back to look this up. His mother called me and was like, look, he's willing to turn himself in to you, but only you. So I get his number. We make a phone call. You know, I talked to my commander, talked to Jag, and they, it's a dumb idea. But I, I felt like I had treated this guy well. I had faith that the relationship we had built was going to be strong enough to, you know, have him not shoot me. So I go to a neutral location, I pick him up and, you know, on the way in, this guy is very thankful that this is the way he's being brought in as opposed to the MPs coming and getting him and that I didn't bring any police with me. We go to the police station and he asked right before we get go in, he's like, Hey, can I have, can I smoke a cigarette before I go in? Cause you know, this is not going to go well for him. So you know, I leave him on the steps of the of the MP station and I go in and people are there ready. And when I tell them that I left him outside, they just panic, right? Because he's been AWOL for, you know, about two weeks at this point and they can't believe I would let him out of my sight. But of course, when they go out there, he's still there, right? And yeah. what this kind of experience like tells me is that I wasn't trying to be this guy's friend. I didn't want him to like me. It didn't matter to me if he liked me. What mattered is that I treated him with respect, that I I gave him the ability to forge a relationship early on before any of this happened that I think facilitated his successful reentry into the UCMJ program, as it were, and allowed that situation to resolve much more peacefully than it could have. And, you know, again, it's not about wanting to be like when he eventually asked me to be a character witness at his trial, literally the moment of his trial, I was like, look, I, I can't do that. Like at this point, you don't want me to be a character witness for you. And again, it really, wasn't I've seen too much. I've seen too much. Right. And again, this wasn't about Charn, Charn McAllister, Commander McAllister wanted to be liked by this soldier. It was about me trying to put off this, this idea that, you know, I'm going to treat you with respect, which I think again, is that low level, which leads to likability and, I think it helped resolve this situation this in this case. And I think all of us can share stories where that type of leadership and that type of care for our subordinates and followers led to, you know, good outcomes for all involved. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's actually kind of funny, but I was just thinking about the uh, the part in Billy Madison where he calls the guy up and he says, hey, man, I'm sorry. I was such a jerk to you. <laughs> and he, t- but he turns around and he <laughs> looks at his like list of names and he scratches out his name with the lipstick. Yeah, with the lipstick. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Puts it on. <laughs> but uh but you know, I think what you're saying though is that you on the front end, you start out treating people with respect and you never have to make that call. You actually have people that go, you know, I'm gonna because this person is treating me a certain way that is respectful that they may not get other or they may not get in a lot of places. Absolutely. Especially a guy like that who would, you know, 
had, you know, the HHD rear duty commander, this is no shame on him. I mean, he had, he had been put through the ringer by this guy and I dig it. I understand why he was angry and upset, you know, and I didn't have to go through that because I was not there for it, but yeah, you, you got to treat everyone that way. No, certainly. The thing that you point out, though, is, is totally right. I can think of so many different UCMJ actions that I went through as a commander and platoon leader that the world of difference was the, you know, the way that you treat people. And so you know, I think UCMJ has a problem, certainly with the presumption of guilt for innocence, in practice at least. But the things that I've seen turn out well, the situations I've seen turn out well, are when the command team is able to, or the leadership team is able to go, we're going to talk to you because you're still ours. Absolutely. Kind of like with my kids, you know, you pointed out earlier, like when you, when you have kids, I know you did something wrong. You know, not just because you're like not looking at me <laughs> or, or when I walked up, you stood still and you never stand still ever a minute in your life. Yeah. But I know that you did something wrong. And I just want you to come clean so that we can kind of get through this together. I, I want to respect you and I want to respect who you are, but let's kind of get through this together. And, it, and when you come out the back end of that, if there is a if there's a possibility that that person can still be around, that person is going to be there for you too. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing, right? It, this is a relationship building uh, technique. You know, some of the things we found in our research was that people who were rated as more liked essentially by their subordinates had higher job satisfaction, had higher uh, rates of like going above and beyond, right? So doing those things that we call citizenship behavior. So things that are not necessarily part of their job, but they do to help the organization as a whole, right? And they had higher well-being, right? So like, this is not just like some, you know, I, I, I know I've hit this so many times, but you know, one of the first comments on the HBR article was, this is exactly what's wrong with leadership today is we're so focused on being liked. And again, it's not, it's not a leader-centric idea. At least, again, I should note this research is super preliminary. This is the first time we've really looked at, anyone's looked at leadership liking, but Mm -hmm. the way we see this, or the way at least that I look at this is, it's not the leader wanting to be liked again, right? It is this idea that you are just approachable and that people could like you. Because I think we've all worked for people that we couldn't like. (laughs) That just, you know, you just can't find a way, you know, in your heart of hearts to like this person. Absolutely. Um, And so I think when we do this, we open up these relationships and it's not about micromanaging. You know, I'll I'll tell you one brief story is I I had a platoon leader as I was leaving uh, the army, I was done with my time and I had a platoon leader who was then, or a former platoon leader who was then a captain. And I said, you know what? I never gave an order, right? I mean, I'd given like some like written orders, you know, for people got in trouble, things like that. But I, I said, like, I'd never really given like an order. And he was like, you never had to. And it's an insight that I wouldn't have noticed on my own, but I've really appreciated that because I think the way I led was I asked people to do things. And I I hope that I had forged relationships in such a way that I never had to tell someone, you're going to do this right now. I asked, hey, can you get this done? You know, those kind of things. And you could claim that, you know, leadership, when you're in a leadership position and you ask someone to do something that maybe that's an order, but I honestly asked people, right? Because I had forged these relationships. And when I did, they went above and beyond, right? If I didn't say, hey, do this, this, and this, because I'd forgotten one of those things, them being the experts, especially the NCOs, got it all done, right? Because I wasn't micromanaging them. And I think that to me, that idea that I never had to give an order was something that really, I mean, it meant a lot to me coming from this platoon leader who I respected as a leader. 
but it was an insight I'd never thought of and really kind of put some of my own leadership philosophy, I guess, into words that I wouldn't have been able to do myself earlier. Right. That's an excellent point for a couple of different reasons. Yeah. I kind of go back to my experiences. I deployed twice. I was in a leadership position in both deployments. The first deployment I took over, I think maybe less than two months into the deployment, I took over a platoon. And so I had to, I had to build my reputation, but I had to build it on listening to people and taking what they were saying and integrating it to what my plan was going to be. Yeah. One, because I, I wasn't the expert when I was there. Sure. I was stepping into a new situation. I didn't know anything. Not least of all about being a platoon leader, which I trained for over five years to be. But the second deployment, I stepped into a situation where we trained for nearly a year to go to Afghanistan. And I built a reputation and I built a relationship with the people that were in my command. And it's kind of interesting. I don't think I would have done nearly as well as a commander if I hadn't done what I what I had done as a platoon leader, because I'd learned the value of listening and understanding and building a base with people so that when you run into those situations where you have to tell somebody, you've got to do this now. I don't have time to explain it to you. Just go. Mm-hmm. Then you have that relationship and that foundation built and they will do it and they won't go. I don't trust you. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I think that's right. Absolutely. Or I'm going to do what my first instinct is, which is not what your first instinct is because that's what I think is right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that sounds perfect. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about having the time to build those relationships. Right. But it comes yeah. from that time when you, you didn't necessarily have that time. You had to, you had to lead while building the relationships. And that's obviously the hardest situation, right. To be in, especially in yeah. a, a combat situation as well. You know, I, I had a similar experience in terms of I, I was a platoon leader uh, during my first deployments. I, I had about a month in that position, maybe two months in that position before I deployed. And then I became the XO at the very end of that deployment. And then I became the commander uh, of that same troop. So I was in the same troop for like three and a half, four years. And I was able to go from PL, XO to commander, which was which was awesome. But I'll and tell you, it's a very uncommon. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I'll, I'll probably tell you a little story about that when we talk about politics in a little bit, but you know, this is one of those things where, you know, to go back to this idea, like, I think I was, I really do at this point think I was likable. I mean, I stay in touch, it, you know, aviation is different because we have warrant officers and they're a whole different breed, but we have our NCOs and soldiers as well. Obviously I had one of my most trusted and respected warrant officers you know, once tell me is like, you know, not many platoon leaders that I've had could have become the commander. And when we talked a little bit about that, you know, what he was really referencing is like, I hadn't crossed any lines that would preclude me from staying with this unit, right? Like I hadn't, you know, cause as a platoon leader, you can get away with a little bit more than the commander, right? Cause you're just that one yeah. step closer to your soldiers and your warrants in this case. And again, I still think I was likable in a way. Like I don't necessarily know I was shooting for likability. I was shooting for this, this idea of respecting others, forming relationships with them. That was more than just, you know, leader subordinate. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think that gave me the ability to go on to to be a commander of that same unit. But the likability part didn't hurt those relationships, didn't hurt my capabilities as a military leader. And I think it'd be the same in the civilian world. Yeah, definitely. So I take those lessons too. And, I, you know, I watch, you know, I watch the people around me constantly. And I've been, I've been through several jobs since being out of the, yeah. uh, the military with a few different organizations. And you know, I, I watch the people that are around me and then watch the way they lead. And it's interesting to me as kind of a, just a personal study, a personal observation 
of the way people act and the way people, I guess part of it is looking to gain favor in, in a way, mm. but people that aren't as concerned about looking for that favor yet are more concerned about doing the right things for the company, you know, maintaining the principles of the company, but also just making sure that that they understand the concerns of the people that they're working with. Like they're the ones who end up being people just like working for them and they'll, Oh yeah. 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 They'll do the work for them because it's really easy in, in a corporate world. It's really easy to find people that they're going to clock in at eight and they're going to clock out at five and that's it. That's all you're going to get from them. Absolutely. It's really hard to find people that are going to go, Hey guys, we got a thing to do and I, and I need you to do it and we're going to do it till it gets done because I'm not going to take any more time than I have to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why military leaders are often so sought after, right? Because I think we bring that care wherever we go. I hope, I mean, I hope, uh, you know, the good military leaders at least. And obviously, I'm not saying there's not civilian leaders who, who don't do that too. Yeah. You know, I, for me, I, I try to take it into the classroom. Like I try to form, I, you know, I look at my <laughs> my students as my soldiers in a way. Um, I try to explain their relationship to them. It's one of those things where I look at myself as someone who can hopefully you know, make their lives better in some way through, through education, but also through the practice of what I preach. Right. I feel like as a teacher who teaches leadership and teaches management, like I also need to be that person. So if I tell them, Hey, you need to get feedback and you need to listen to your subordinates. I also need to do that as the teacher. Like I'm not necessarily their leader, but I kind of look at it that way for that semester. And I'll tell you the same things that happened to me in the military happen in the classroom where I have students come to office hours and very rarely is it about what's in the textbook or what's on the test, but hey, what should I do with this personal problem that I have, which yeah. you know, any platoon leader is going to know that's half of your job. And half of it as a 22-year-old platoon leader, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you have a soldier. It's zero. Yeah, who's like, you know, who's who's getting ma- Literally, I had a soldier get married. The, 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 the cliche, I had a soldier get married to a stripper. And I was like, don't do it. Like, this is like, this is the one thing that everyone knows not to do before deployment. And then four months in deployment, it was like, hey, I need to go on my mid-tour leave because I need to get my divorce settled. And I was like, ah, dude, right? But like, Mm -hmm. at least he came to me ahead of time and told me it was going to happen. He didn't listen to me. I mean, I get it. But like, you're trying to form these relationships where you can deal with those personal issues. Um, And I'll say that that's what you, I have no doubt, Joey, that's, that's what you're doing with your people in the workplace. And even if they're peers, you know, it's a little different relationship, but you're there to help, right? And you're there to make sure that they are successful at what they do. And I think anyone can adopt that. Um, but I think what we went through in the military makes us especially suited to making sure that everyone is taken care of at the end of the day. Yeah. And there's some nuance in the the business workplace sure. that's there where you have to create that relationship and that it's kind of a negotiation, right? Okay. Yeah. You have to step into it lightly and you have to, people will give up information. I'm not going to beg them to tell me about their lives. Sure. But if they surrender some sort of information, I'll ask them, well, hey, what about that? And if that's where they leave it, great. They don't want to answer anymore. That's fine. But you can easily find out how much trust you've gained with a person by how much personal information they're willing to talk with you about. And, and you can feel your way through a conversation and, and building that trust with somebody in a business setting where that is not readily available. Whereas in the military, it was like, hey, this is me. You know, I'm just going to throw it out there. You kind of have to know about my, some of my life anyway. Yeah, Joe, I mean, I think you nailed it. And just bring it back to what you talked about with, you know, like leadership textbooks or leadership books and how some people read like one sentence and they don't really get the idea. I'm sure there are leadership books out there that say, get to know your 
subordinates or your employees. And these people will hound someone until they tell them all about their personal lives and make that employee super uncomfortable, not realizing that there are boundaries there. And I mean, this article and just everything that I study shows that, you know, soft skills, the ability to empathize, the ability mm-hmm. to be authentic um, with your subordinates, that is the new like style of leadership to really get to understand and know your subordinates. And I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not discounting, you know, centuries of leadership, but this is what we're looking for. This is how I think we get to that next level and really empower individuals to, to do better. And so, yeah, I mean, the good leader says, hey, you know, can you tell me a little about yourself? And if that person pushes back, you say, all right, no problems with that, right? Either we'll get to it or you're just not a sharer and that's fine, right? There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. A good leader will be able to gauge how they treat each subordinate. It's an individual thing. And that's what makes leadership so much fun. Like when I sell leadership to my students, I'm like, look, there is no job more fun than leadership because just as soon as you figure it out, you change companies and the whole thing is different. The way you lead is yep. different. The people are different. And it is the most fun job in the world. I mean, it's it's awful. I mean, like at the same time, I tell my students like leadership is like gut-wrenching, but it is is the most dynamic, amazing job that you can have. Absolutely. Let's break for a quick message. No matter how you may feel about it, face masks have become a fixed feature in our lives for the time being. Whether your kids are going to school or you're going to work, you're going to need to put a cover on that face to do it. If you have a team and want to boost team pride or help them rep the brand, you need to order Emblem Shields from Emblem Athletic. It's simple to get started. Go to emblemshield.com and submit a logo graphic designers will use to create a design you can tweak or approve. Then you'll get a link to an exclusive online store where your team can purchase on their own or you can bulk order. In no time, your people will have a face shield that doesn't crush their spirit and they can wear other ways long after they don't need to use masks anymore, which we all hope is very soon. Now back to the episode. Well, and with that, I really want to talk about what you're doing now, what you are are spending your time doing now, talking about the political leader and the politics of, of, now you, you describe it because you're going to, you're going to obviously do a better justice than I am. Yeah, no, I think you got it, man. I, I I think politics and, you know, organizational politics is a part of leadership, you know? So what I study primarily is political skill, right? Which is your ability to navigate organizational politics successfully. That That's simple, right? And the one thing that whenever I talk about organizational politics, and I'm sure anyone listening to this already has like a negative connotation to it, right? Because playing politics has an inherently negative connotation, but Within the way we research it, we try to treat it as a neutral term, right? That politics is in the eye of the beholder. It can be used for good just as much as it can be used for evil, but we tend to recognize it more when it's used for evil, right? Because one, it makes for better stories when we're watching right. our Netflix, right? No one wants to see good uses of politics. And two, no, we t- no. yeah, we tend to remember the times that we were screwed over by someone, right? Like more than the one time it worked out for us. It's just the reality of it. Yeah, good um, politics didn't make House of Cards a good, a good show. Exactly. That's the perfect example, right? And so- when we talk about politics too, it's not always not always politics like, you know, government type politics. It is every organization has politics. And so if you're listening and you think to yourself, my company has no politics, I, bad news, your company has politics, it's just going over your head, right? Which is the worst position to be in. We call you a bystander. And that's the worst because politics are essentially being done onto you and you don't know it, or they're happening all around you and you can't do anything about it. Um, and so again, you know, I think politics gets a really bad name. Um, but 
I would argue that there's a time and it's probably now for good, moral, authentic leaders to really start considering using politics. And that doesn't mean compromising your ethics. It doesn't mean compromising who you are as an individual. It means, you know, reading the room and understanding an organization and strategizing how to succeed personally, how to succeed for your subordinates and how to succeed for your organization. And those things don't mean doing anything bad. Right. You know, there's just so much to what you just said. I kind of go back and I think about some of the leaders that I've encountered and some of the really, really great leaders that care. Think back to yep. what, you know, I had an interview with, with Clay Henchman I and mean, he talks about yeah, caring about people. Yeah. And I just, I, I love his, his outlook, you know, but he, he talks about really caring about people, really, you know, investing in people, you know, that could be to our, our point earlier about being likable. You could be doing something the best thing possible for somebody at that point, and they may hate you for it, but you know that you're doing the right thing for that person. But, you know, he also talks about genuinely caring, and I've met some incredible leaders that genuinely care, and I respected them more than anybody in the world, but they didn't get into the politics. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, they kind of, they, they may not have gotten that look or that have progressed through the organization because they didn't you know, play a certain game or they didn't make a certain alignment or, or whatever. And that only makes that organization lose out on good people because they either become disenfranchised or they don't want to play or they're not taking the view of being involved in that organization in that way as a way for them to serve their subordinates in another domain. Yeah, absolutely. And they may not even get the chance simply because someone else was playing politics. And yeah, I think it's the, the old story um, that's probably told more in the infantry, but we all heard at West Point about the, you know, the one soldier who did his, you know, the leader, platoon leader who did his job, did all the missions, you know, comes back and the rucksacks aren't perfectly aligned um, after the mission and soldiers are, you know, take, getting taken care of. The general season is like, this guy is just, you know, messed up. And the other soldier, platoon leader who didn't do anything, but all the soldiers are perfectly lined up, rucksacks in a row. And it's like, well, that soldier squared away, that leader squared away. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, leaders could benefit from recognizing that you can do good by your soldiers and use politics at the same time. In fact, I would argue that you should, you know, what we found over and over again with political skill, and this has been going on since the early 2000s, I was very fortunate to go to Florida State, where essentially the creator of political skill, the, the man who invented this, uh, this construct, works and trained me. What we find is that people with political skill, and we can measure this, tend to have more promotions, they have higher pay, they have less stress, you know, time and time again. And when people ask, well, what does political skill look like? Like what how does this manifest? Well, it manifests as people being more affable, being more humble, having uh, like effective interpersonal styles. Um, they develop trust. Notice that none of those things said, hey, I'm trying to screw someone over on my way to the top, right? People who are politically skilled understand how to read a room, how to recognize an opportunity and how to capitalize upon it. Again, some people recognize opportunities that will screw other people over. Sure. Negative example of politics, but there's plenty of positive examples along the way. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I was the, the benefit of political skill of my commander in S3 when I was a platoon leader. You know, I, hopefully my squadron commander doesn't listen to this or former one. He hated me. This guy straight up hated me. I was the platoon leader who 
caused way too much trouble, right? Like we had an incident at NTC where I thought the winds, well, I didn't think the winds were out of tolerance. And, you know, I said, we're going to land. This is a training mission. Doesn't matter that, that you want us to keep flying, sir, we're going to land. And we landed and I got screamed at in the headquarters, you know, for 30 minutes uh, because I had done that. And a whole bunch of other things, I guess, along the way, uh, including one time when I went to his office in Iraq and our troop was growing mustaches because, you know, what else are you going to do in Iraq? And yeah. uh, as opposed to telling me to shave my mustache, he then emailed my commander uh, and said, get your troops mustaches under control, uh, which I think is hilarious. I still have the email um, that he sent to my commander. Instead of just telling me a lieutenant to shave my mustache. Um, but let us let me just throw it out there. This guy did not like me. Right. And there were several incidents that in his mind probably disqualify me from troop command. At the same time, my troop commander, when we got back to the States, had an opportunity for a really great posting, but the the unit wouldn't let him leave until he had a replacement, whether incoming or from somewhere within the unit. They had identified me as a possible troop commander, but they couldn't tell the squadron commander because they knew he would veto it. So the S3 and my commander worked on their own with the incoming squadron commander, unbeknownst to the current squadron commander, to install me as the troop commander. The day after my squadron commander left command, I was announced as a new troop commander, <laughs> which was awesome for me. I mean, that was that was politics. Yeah. That was people playing the game. And I'll tell you, they knew, I'll toot my horn a little bit here, like I was going to take care of soldiers. Like they knew that. I was able to skip captain's career course. I was the first captain in my brigade to get command without going to captain's career course. So this was like, you know, they had to pull a lot of strings to make this happen and make a lot of promises all the way up to brigade command that I wasn't going to screw this up. And I was reminded of that several times. Mind I'm you. sure. As I screwed things up every once in a while, like commanders are prone to do, I was reminded that I wouldn't screw up. But I'll tell you, that was an example, I think, I hope, where politics you know, one served me, but two, I hope served my soldiers by giving them what I, I hope was a good commander. And I think we can see if those leaders that you really respected and gave it all for soldiers thought about the best ways to present their cases or to insert themselves into higher level conversations, maybe we would have these ethical, respected leaders at the highest echelons, which you know, in my opinion, is not always happening. You know, I see, you know, I think about how many generals and admirals go down for ethics violations or for poor leadership. Oh, yeah. How many great leaders become terminal colonels or terminal lieutenant colonels because they didn't make whatever silly cut it was, you know? And I think that's the big thing for me with political skill is that good leaders need to start engaging in organizational politics and not compromising their integrity, but, you know, quote unquote, playing the game a little bit. Yeah, I think about the, I kind of think about this idea of the reluctant leader, right? Sure. This person that doesn't want to engage, they, they they want to do well at what they're there for, which is in the military, that's meeting the mission, taking care of your people and be damned if I score political points in the pursuit of that. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in the military being very idealistic about looking at that, at, at that idea and thinking that's the way. Instead of, and I think it was, you know, in retrospect, I think it was very naive to think, right, we can just get by with good people, good ethical, moral people not pursuing those positions because they think it's unbecoming or, or whatever it is. Because I, you know, I kind of look at our, our landscape now in national levels of leadership and go, who are the people that we're allowing to gain these positions of, you know, let's just call it what it is, these positions of power 
it's the people who are seeking power, not seeking people who are seeking service and people who are seeking the best outcome for the people that they're representing. And you know, how many years did I waste downplaying the importance of of the political domain for for leadership or you know the need to understand politics, interpersonal relations, and the dynamics of organizations. Yeah, I mean, guilty as charged as well. I mean, you know, I lived my life even somewhat now. I try to I try to break it in an idealistic bubble. You know, we talked about our time on the honor committee, you know, mm-hmm. which I think was a huge, you know, I was someone who who believed wholeheartedly in the system. I mean, I think I tell my students I'm an altruist. I really do believe that people generally have good intentions, or at least I have believed that. I guess it started to crack a little bit uh, recently, but you know, I'll yeah. say it's probably been to a fault. I, you know, when I was applying to West Point, I had a mentor who said he knew I had had asthma, childhood asthma, which is asthma before the age of twelve, and uh, he said take all the records out of your medical files before you send them to West Point because they're going to disqualify you and you'll never get in. And I didn't, I didn't take them out because I said to myself, like, you know, I'm starting at an institution where everyone always tells the truth, where there's no lying, you know, where this is the start of my career in the military and I I can't take these records out. You know, the result of that was me getting disqualified from West Point on December 22nd, believe it or not. um, After getting early. Imagine you still know that date. I do. Uh, I called the Department of Defense Medical Examination Review Board side story real quick, like a hundred times. I'd be at friends' houses, you know, calling. And back then it was on landlines, as you may recall, um, you know, calling the Department of Defense. And the only reason I got into West Point, truth be told, is my mom shows up to my my high school. <laughs> and I think it was like April. And she said, hey, the Naval Academy just called. I'd gotten appointments to both. And she said, the Naval Academy just called. It's the last day to accept people. And they granted your waiver. And they want to know an answer wow. by the end of the day. So you know, I skip class. She drives me home. And the first people I call, West Point, obviously. I don't want to go to Naval Academy. Let's be real here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who does? Ugh. So yeah, exactly. So I called. Uh, yeah, I, I called my uh, my recruiting guy there. Major Datus uh, was his name. He put me on hold for 15 minutes after I explained the situation. Yeah, I'll never forget. He said, you can tell those Navy dogs you'll be wearing cadet gray in July. So that's awesome. pretty cool story to get into West Point. That whole long story to say, super idealistic. Um, when I went to West Point, I never thought I'd get in in the first place because I wasn't perfect. I was very well aware, but I'm an idealist. I thought everyone there was perfect. You know, I, I realized that was not true. You know, we're not perfect. Um, very much so. You know, in fact, you know, through the honor committee, I learned that people who had violated the honor code been found guilty of violating the honor code, were given pardons by the superintendent, things that were a little frustrating at the time. And, you know, I'll I'll be very honest with huge moral flaw, I guess I had, looking back on it now, I didn't know it at the time, but when the whole sexual assault in the military thing was coming out, I defended West Point tooth and nail saying that would never happen at West Point. And I was armed with one, a steadfast idealism at life and at West Point. And also I had a wife who had went to West Point and had not really received any sexual harassment while she was there. Of course, yeah. as you're probably aware, uh, at least one of our female classmates has come out as being sexually assaulted while she was a plebe at West Point. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I reached out to her. I felt awful because here I was for years. I had said that could never happen at West Point. I'd said this to, you know, different groups of people. So, 
you know, this idea of you living in this, this, you know, idealistic world where you weren't thinking about those things. I think a lot of us were and do, and I definitely felt like I was doing the right thing by not playing politics. Um, and not trying to get involved in those things. To me, it was soldiers first and soldiers always. It, my career be damned. I wanted to make sure the right thing was done. With a little bit of wisdom <laughs> through the years, uh, a little bit of experience. Before I went to study politics, I don't think I would have known, really understood what had happened to me to make me become a commander in terms of the politics involved in that. But I recognize now that that was only because of people really playing politics for me. And I recognize now that Standing on ceremony and just being idealistic for the sake of being idealistic and just focusing on one thing doesn't help you and doesn't help your soldiers. I probably could have gotten more done for my soldiers, especially with that one squadron commander who didn't like me, had I approached some of those issues differently, right? And had I stayed in his good graces, I I may have found more opportunities for myself, which would have led more opportunities for my troop, right? To be selected for different missions or things like that. And I think that's the benefit of engaging in the political arena. I think, you know, there's one quote real quickly by Plato, which was meant for, you know, government politics, but it applies here, which is, you know, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. And I think that's the truth, right? You had leaders who were super respected that didn't go as far as those who just played the game. I'm not saying we just play the game, but there's something to be said for having your hand in it so that we can have good leaders at the top. Absolutely. Everything you just said was pretty incredible, not least of all. One point I want to bring up is the point you said, the attitude of, I'm going to serve soldiers, you know, everything else be damned. And it's not to say that that's the wrong attitude, but it's the wrong application. Absolutely. It's the wrong, you don't come out into a situation guns a-blazing well, I don't, you know, I don't give a damn about whatever this person says. Yep. You walk into a room and you say, I'm not going to compromise for my people, but I'm going to maneuver for those people. Exactly. I'm going to read the room and I'm going to understand what kind of moves need to be made to make sure that I'm doing the best. And if it comes down to it, I'm going to pull out those guns. No, and that's it though, right, man? Because we are literally tacticians by trade <laughs> and we're not yeah. tactical at all because we are so drunk with idealism. And look, I, I've been accused of being black and white and idealistic. The superintendent of West Point called me idealistic. He said, Cadet McAllister, you're too idealistic. And that that hurts when a three-star general tells you that. Um, <laughs> but it was one of those things where we are tacticians. That's what we do. And like you said, maneuver, that is the best way to put it. We don't maneuver. We go in, we just do a full frontal assault and we don't think about anything else. And that is right. to the detriment of our soldiers and ourselves. Well, I'll tell you what, all that idealism for me probably stems from, uh, you know, early, an early reading and interpretation of Once an Eagle. Oh, yeah. Which is like, seems like a central reading for every cadet, but. It is, right? Like that, and you know, I, I've, I, we talked about this real briefly. I, I've won. Funny story. My commander was all about Once an Eagle. He loved this book, right? And my commander in Iraq during my first uh, deployment when I was a platoon leader. And my other platoon leader would rib him all the time, was like, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't really end out well for Sam. And, you know, for those who haven't read it, Sam is the one who cares about soldiers. I believe Courtney is the bad guy. Um, who yeah, just, Courtney you know, politics. Yeah, Courtney Massingale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we had kind of gone back and forth with it and we come back from the deployment and we're, my commander's leaving again. I'm taking over his position. He has us over for dinner with his spouses and he gives us like a parting gift as lieutenants. And 
it's clearly a book. Let me be clear. Like, you know, books are very obviously shaped. It's wrapped, right? And my other platoon leader, who I love and is the nicest guy, and we will be friends forever, you know, you know how that relationship goes. But he turns, he's like, oh, this is probably something like Once an Eagle. <laughs> and of course, it was a first edition of Once an Eagle, which was a super oh, kind wow. gift, but it led for a little bit of an awkward part of the conversation. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd gotten this really nice gift. He's like, oh, yeah, this is probably something like Once an Eagle. And uh, yeah, it was. But that book does you know, it, it shows that, you know, you have this really good leader who cares and wants to do the right thing. And, you know, I, I don't know if I want to go as far, maybe he was punished for it. Right. And this person who doesn't care about soldiers at all continues the rise through the ranks. And mm-hmm. the lesson there has been taken over and over again that, you know, we need to, you know, we need to be more like Sam, everything else. Be Sam. But yeah. the problem is, like you said, like, that means that all the Courtney's are in charge and I would love to see more Sam's in charge, both in our government and politics, but in the military and in the civilian world, I want more Sam's like that's That's who we want. And unfortunately mm-hmm. for Sam to be in charge, they need to recognize that everyone's playing politics. And if we stand on ceremony, we're going to get, you know, passed over by Courtney. You know, just because you're politically aware, doesn't mean like you're Machiavellian or anything like that. You know, you didn't oh, yeah. like, take all your take your entire playbook from the prince exactly and and, oh. and there's machiavellianism is a whole nother thing that we study i study machiavellians yeah. too and they're a different person <laughs> to me when i like when i read that that's not necessarily bad now are there some people that might have psychopathic tendencies that could or sociopathic tendencies that could they could take the lessons from that and implement them in a malevolent way sure, sure. yeah absolutely but it is a to me, it's a book of maneuvers, right? But it's social maneuvers. Oh, yeah. Dude, true story. I gave that book to every one of my platoon leaders. <laughs> yeah. That is, a, that is a true story. Um, and it was not meant to be taken, you know, necessarily to the, the psychopathic way, but it's a pretty solid book. I assigned it in my class. People have to read excerpts from it. That's why I like, uh, what book is it? The Principles of Power. It's like the- Oh, The 48 Laws of Power? Book. Yeah, yeah. That's a good book. I, I listened to the audio book. I actually need to purchase the book and actually read it. Solid book. I almost assigned it, but it's, it's, I worry I'd get fired for it. There's a couple on there yeah. that are a little bit much for an academic yeah. environment. Um, yeah. You know, if you like that book, the, the successor or the assistant to that author, I can't remember his name right now, is a guy named Ryan Holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ryan Holiday has a three book series on Stoic philosophy, which I, I assigned yeah. one of them to my students. His first one, I think, is uh, Ego is the Enemy, which is what I assign to my students. Solid book. Uh, You could probably read it in two days. And then his contemporary is a guy named Mark Manson, who has the best name books ever, which is The Art, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, oh, Everything is Fucked. And both books are amazing. I quote Everything is Fucked in my class all the time. I haven't assigned it yet. Because again, I like my job. <laughs> I quote it and I try to teach morals and ethics using both of those books because they break it down in a way that students can understand. Right. Well, based on what you've studied, what are some good things that people can use in practice or ways that they can look to develop in practice? Because it's one thing to talk about, you know, I think you need to learn how to maneuver. I think you need to learn how to read a room. That's all nice to say, but what is it that people can actually do? Yeah, man. So political skill is really interesting because, you know, it's it's not like 
not like running, right? If you run, you're going to get better at running, generally speaking, right? Because uh, you get immediate feedback. You, you run that next mile a little bit faster, or you run an extra mile the next day, whatever it is. With right. political skill, a lot of times it's hard to understand if you've successfully influenced someone or if you've made a good strategic move till quite some time afterwards, right? So what we would say is the first thing, at least in my opinion, that you should do is look at getting a mentor within the organization. So finding a mentor who is a little above your current position, who may have access to information that you don't have, because that's going to give you feedback. You know, for anyone uh, who's looking to improve in any skill, have you heard of that 10,000 hour rule? Yeah. Is it to build mastery? Yeah. They say after 10,000 hours, you become a master. And that's one of those examples where a quote has been taken way out of context. Look, Joey, you play guitar. I play guitar. If I play the same Hello Courage song over and over again for <laughs> 10,000 hours, am I going to be as good as Joe Satriani? Definitely not. Definitely not, right? It actually is 10,000 hours of what we call dedicated practice, man, which is doing your scales, doing your chords, pushing yourself a little bit further, not just doing the same minor pentatonic scale. It's about trying something a little bit harder than you're at, right? And you're getting feedback. That's why we have teachers. The reason we pay for guitar teachers, the reason we pay for any kind of teacher is to give us immediate feedback. In the realm of political skill, that's really hard to do because we often don't know, again, if our influence works. So find a mentor, find someone who can give you feedback. Or when you get feedback, really try to trace back why that happened. Um, we look at political skills having four main dimensions. One of them is networking ability, which is your ability to maintain and uh, essentially to make and maintain a network, right? So can you start making that large body of, of colleagues who can feed you information or that you can spread information through? And if you get a large enough body of people, you have you know more access to information, which can also give you some feedback. Um, we talk about uh, apparent sincerity, and this just, I hate that we have it called this because it sounds kind of dicey, right? Apparent sincerity, yeah. right? It's your ability to appear genuine and don't take it as a negative connotation here. What it really is, is when you say that you're sorry and you mean it, does it look like it? Okay. Cause there are a lot of people that say, I'm sorry. And they do mean it, but it doesn't come across that way. And people, you've, anyone who's had a, you know, had a, a significant other before has probably heard that before. You don't really mean that. Right. But yeah. It's about telling your subordinates, I care about you and meaning it, right? So for me, it's that leader who, you know, is, is hearing that, you know, someone, their, one of their followers' mothers is in the hospital, right? Their mother's in the hospital and they say, you know, I'm really sorry that's happening. Let me know what I can do. And then that subordinate comes to you and is like, hey, I would really like to leave work a half hour early today. Like, no, we can't do anything. It's about appearing genuine and appearing sincere, not faking it. It's about actually appearing as you as you say. And so really showing and following through with those actions. I think that's something all of us can work on. Uh, we have actually told CEOs to go to acting classes before. You may have oh, seen wow. people uh, from like uh, the BP oil spill when uh, the CEO basically apologized. And then two days later, he was out on his boat just traversing around the ocean. That's not a great way to look apologetic. Um, definitely not jet blues CEO had some issues a couple of years ago. It looked completely faked his apology to his, his group, you know, going to acting classes is a last resort for those people who, uh, or I should say maybe it's a first, first option for those people who just can't express themselves. Al Gore has always been, you know, chided as being very wooden and non-expressive. But if you're one of those people, particularly dudes who dudes as opposed to women, uh, who are not very good at expressing emotions, 
you know, learning how to look contrite, and that doesn't mean faking it. It just means showing people and giving those proper signals is important. So, you know, I think there's a couple of things we can do and just, you know, influencing others, learning how to express yourself in a way, like you said, that is not a full frontal assault, but, you know, asking people to get things done. If you're the kind of person who's always told people what to do, start walking it back and learn how to ask people to get it done and see if you can have success that way. Yeah. You talk about being insincere. It kind of takes me a few days back where uh, Thomas Modley's issuing a, an apology oh, yeah. for, oh, for what, you know, you know, for what he said on board the aircraft carrier. And it's like, come on. But that is a, that is a good re- representation of, of not being apparently sincere. Yeah. And that's, and you know, that's, that's perfect. Right. Because that is like an example of exactly what not to do. The last dimension that I didn't talk about is social astuteness, which is my favorite one. It's basically your ability to recognize patterns. Right. And the fact that he did not recognize, he's a Naval Academy grad, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. So one knock against Naval Academy Two, also he's a Naval Academy grad and they're, they're second best at what they do. Right. So, I mean, they should, you should be better trained. But so yeah. somehow he didn't recognize that, you know, spending a quarter million dollars to fly to this aircraft carrier and chastise the leader who had just done something, at least at the face of it, you know, I'm not an expert on the situation, but seemed like he was trying to take care of his soldiers and then roundly chastising him was going to be a bad idea. He was not situationally aware, right? And that's what we call social right. astuteness. If you find that you are constantly the person who is saying the wrong thing <laughs> at the wrong time, work on your social students. Like you said earlier, just start listening more. That's, that's a pretty easy way to do it. Start listening, learn how to read the room, learn how to read people's expressions and emotions and react to those as opposed to just acting like a bull in a china shop. Definitely. I think about what you said about you know the 10,000 hours and, and mastery. I think about the way people practice politics and the way people practice you know, building a network. One of the things you just spoke about was is everything about the practice of leadership, everything about the practice of politics is social. And sometimes it's really hard for people for different reasons. So, you know, say, you know, you hear about, uh, you know, the, the studies of, of people that ascend to high levels of, of leadership, sometimes not being the most socially proficient, but they still do it anyway, because they, you know, maybe they learn how to talk or they learn how to act or they learn how to sound sincere and things like that. But when it really comes down to it, it's about practicing that art of discussion. It's about practicing that art of, of connecting with people. And that takes social interaction. And, and to me, leadership is a really study of people. And when you talk about creating mastery around something, you have to invest time in doing it, right? So you have to invest time in talking to people and learning more about people and interacting with people. And when you practice anything, you try to find low stakes ways of practicing, low stakes ways of spending time in the business of, of getting better at whatever it is that you're looking to get better at. If it's building a network, it's finding places to go interact with people. And it's really interesting how easy it can be in professional settings because you think about it. You know, you have all sorts of meetups, social hours, you go to conferences that have social interactions, you really have a lot of people that are trying just to connect. And the practice of doing that is it can be difficult for somebody who gets social anxiety and things like that. You know, that, that absolutely does exist, Yeah, but it has to be practiced in order to be, in order for you to be successful at it. And there's 
endless opportunities of practice uh, to, to get good at that. Yeah. You just put yourself in those situations. And again, like I, you know, I, I always say I'm a, uh, an introverted extrovert, right? Like I am, when I, when I teach, I'm happy to be up in front of the class Uh, as a leader. I never meant, I never minded, you know, being out in front of people, but I don't like to network. Like I go to conferences now as an academic and that's not my, not my forte, even though I teach this stuff, like, but you know, there are so many opportunities, you know, today I was out, uh, with my son and I, we went to like this nearby school, uh, as well as it used to be like a, uh, a school for, um, people with some mental disabilities and the schools has been shut down since then. So we're riding there and all the windows are boarded up. It kind of looks like something out of a horror movie. And this guy pulls up next to my son and I, and my son's three. So it's not like, you know, I, I can not watch him, but he asked me if this is the the Rentham school. And I said, yeah, it's the Rentham school. And he's like, oh, you know, is it shut down? I said, well, yeah, it's shut down. I mean, there's every window is boarded up. And he's like, well, the reason they boarded up is because there's so many Satanists who try to get into these buildings. I'm like, wow, we just went from zero to 60 uh, in this conversation. <laughs> That's a big ramp up. Yeah, there was like, there was, and he started telling me about Satanists and how they think there's ghosts in these places. And, you know, I've never shied away from those conversations. <laughs> and I know this is silly, but it's it's a low stakes way to deal with weird conversations and to mm-hmm. deal with things that are just out, out there. Because as you know, your soldiers would come up with weird things and subordinates do that. You know, I had a, I had a student as a professor walk into my office and say that he has been feeling pressured to have sex. And I was like, this is not something I am prepared for, right? At like 7.30 in the morning before I'm about to teach. But these are things that leaders deal with and it's these weird situations and use every one of them. I I definitely engaged this person and tried to have the conversation and try to have him leave feeling like he had gotten what he needed in this conversation. Right. And while still taking care of my son, obviously. And I think there are a lot of these low stakes, you know, opportunities just go out there in the world. And if people talk to you, don't just shove them off, you know, have that brief conversation. It was all three minutes, but you know, that's, that's how we get better at these social interactions. Definitely. All right. Uh, well, is there anything else that you want to cover with, um, I don't know, any, anything we just talked about, anything we didn't really, we didn't really get to. I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I'll, <laughs> for, for like the 16th time, I'll just say, you know, again, it's not about wanting to be liked. It's not about this idea that the leader needs some validation or needs friends. It's really about this idea that being willing and being open that people want to form those relationships with you. And I'll add that, you know, this research is solid. I think it's very good research, but it's very preliminary. So a lot of these conjectures that I'm making about how to actually execute this are, are just that conjectures, the research itself uh, about the importance of likability, solid, uh, all the evidence supports it. But I encourage people to really, really think about this because I I do think likability is a really low standard to achieve and that, you know, military, civilian, whatever kind of, you know, role you are in, I think this can really help you. And more importantly, help your subordinates. They'll do better. You'll do better. It's really a win-win for everyone. And uh, I think it's more enjoyable as a leader. You know what I mean? You don't have to meet some unrealistic standard of being this hard-nosed, you know, yeller or whatever it may be. You can just be you. And I think most people tend to be likable. So just be yourself. And I think you can probably succeed. What about those people that aren't likable? I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. Reassess, reassess themselves or, uh, you know, recycle them, right? You're a ranger, recycle them. 
Yeah, recycle. Uh, it kind of reminds me of it's very apparent when people are just really trying too hard. Yeah. Run into multiple leaders in, in my past that you can see them when they walk into the room and they're like trying to like walk up to people that they haven't built any sort of relationship with. And it's like, eh, you know, <laughs> like they're trying to like throw something out there that just doesn't work. You're like you obviously have no idea who you're talking to. Yeah, no, this is perfect. So, uh, yeah, last brief story is just to give an example of that person. When I was at Sapper school, we had a guy who was a lieutenant and he, he was having a hell of a time on his patrols and he had been, you know, terrible as a subordinate whenever we were patrol leaders. Right. And so, as you know, that doesn't go well for you when it's your turn to be the PL. Um, and he was getting a lot of flack from his own, you know, cause you go to cyber school as a unit usually. So there were the cadets, which I was, and then there was the actual engineer unit. And there he is in the middle of this patrol base and he takes out a sheet of paper, draws a circle and holds it up and says, everyone listen to me. This is the trust button. I need you to push it. Oh no. Oh yeah. That, that, (laughs) yeah, that really happened. And I think, although that's an overt example, like, I think like you're talking about those people are essentially doing that. Like they're overbearing, like just, they just kind of come on too strong or they're asking for too much too quickly. Mm -hmm. Trust is built over time, right? Again, like it's about building relationships with others and that doesn't happen in one day. Most of us didn't meet our spouse and marry them a day later, right? Relationships take time to build. And if a subordinate is going to trust a leader, it's going to take time to build that, that trust. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't force it, right? Just take your time, do what you do, be a good person. And that, that is going to build on its own because it's hard not to like people who are good, capital G good, that want to do the right thing um, and are looking out for us. You just, you almost fall into the trap of liking them, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think that's about all I could think to ask. Is there anything else that, I mean, I guess last chance summer dance. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover? No, just thank you for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've really liked your podcast. Um, yeah, I, I feel honored to be a part of it. So thank you. No, thank you. And I, I appreciate you being a part of it and you being so open and willing to share what it is you're working on. I'm really excited about reading more about it. This is me asking you, is there anything you're working on that you want to tell people about that they can, can go out and read, look at, get involved with? Yeah, I appreciate that, Joe. Yeah, we, we actually do have a book on political skill coming out, I think, May 26th. It's called Political Skill at Work. It's the second edition of the book. It's just basically a handbook on political skill. It teaches you all about political skill and, and hopefully how to improve it. But I also say, you know, there's we work on these HBRs and, you know, my whole my whole thing is not to have this ivory tower ap- academic type perspective. I want it to be practical. I want the research to be out there. So, you know, if anyone you know ever needs extra research on it or wants to talk about it, I'm always open for that because... Uh, you know, I think this is research that can really help people. I, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it helped people. So I just want it to be in the hands of people who can use it and make their lives and more importantly, their subordinates lives better. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you again so much for doing this. And I hope we get a chance to talk again and, and talk about more of what you're doing. Absolutely, man. Thank you. No, thank you. So it's been a hot minute since we talked, since we recorded this uh, this episode. We recorded back in April. It's currently it's middle of December. I just want to give everybody an updated intro to Charm McAllister.
Yeah, Joey, thanks. My family moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona. We were in Boston, Massachusetts beforehand, and we are now at Northern Arizona University. Both my wife and I uh, ended up with tenure track jobs out here. So it's just amazing. We've always wanted to live in a uh, small college town with mountains, and uh, we got just that here in Flagstaff. And the first semester here was incredible, even despite all the, the COVID situations. You know, we're not really teaching in person, we're still teaching. Uh, online for the most part. And I definitely like being in the classroom with the students. But even with all of that, this has just been one of the best moves. Actually, it's probably the best move uh, that we've ever made, uh, especially with the military. We've made a lot of moves and this is just uh, <laughs> the best by far. It sounds like an awesome move. You've also had a pretty incredible accomplishment. I think you should go ahead and mention that. Yeah. So I was, I've been an ultra runner now for about eight years and I remember when I started, I was like, oh, I'll never run a hundred miles. And then I did a hundred miler and I was hooked. And then around the time I finished my first few hundreds, I was like, oh, there are these two hundreds out there. <laughs> and uh, I think my wife was like, please, no, don't do that. But I just got hooked on the idea of it. And this year moving out to Flagstaff, I was really close to the Moab 240. And I should actually say I was signed up for Bigfoot originally. And because of COVID, they canceled it. But I was so close to Moab, I was able to switch my race registration to the Moab 240. And so it's a 240 mile race through Moab, Utah. And you have 112 hours to finish it. And I finished in 111 hours and 57 minutes. So I was <laughs> cutting it incredible. close. Yeah, it was, uh, it was cutting it close. And uh, it was a, an amazing experience. And it was definitely a, a challenge, like really hard uh, event to do, but it was also one of the most rewarding. And I just enjoyed every step of the the trip. It was just absolutely, you know, beautiful and gorgeous to be out there where, you know, really no one else can run on those trails or have that, you know, mm -hmm. well of an organized race. And, you know, every 20 or 30 miles, you had some food and water and uh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Just like every, you know, every marathon, you have a good stop with food and water, you know, no biggie. Yeah. But <laughs> But I, I think that's really cool. Events like that are pretty amazing. It's awesome that organizers let you switch your registration like that. But I know that that community is very supportive. And, you know, when you run into other other racers in the ultra community that are very supportive and each of those races can kind of be its own bonding event with people that you've never met before. Yeah, I mean, that was the absolute truth here, you know, about two days before the race. Uh, one of the other runners on Facebook posted a question about how some of the gear was being carried because you have to carry most of your gear uh, the entire length of the race. And I just posted a picture of how I used some of my old first aid pouches for my uh, LC gear um, attached to my bag to carry some first aid stuff. And he saw my post, saw that I was wearing a Florida State t-shirt uh, on uh, my Facebook profile. He had graduated from Florida State the same year that we graduated from West Point. Um, and we ended up running pretty much the whole race together. Um, so it was, you know, this incredible friendship that was, you know, born out of, you know, a hundred hours running together uh, and including some, you know, crazy things that happened out on the course. I mean, he fell asleep at one point. Uh, we, you know, sleep on the side of the trail and I was like, Hey, I'm going to go up ahead. I'll fall asleep in a little bit. When you catch me, um, just wake me up. And about five minutes later, I see him running down the trail behind me, yelling my name. And uh, he had just been woken up by a mountain lion. 
Uh, he was one of three of the racers uh, that had a mountain lion interaction uh, during the race. And those are the kind of things that, because he was, he was running at me and I'm like, hey man, we're fine. We're fine. I'm right here. And he's like, we're not okay. We're not okay. Start running. <laughs> and uh, I was, I just told him like at this point, if the mountain lion's there, we're toast anyway. So we might as well just keep on walking. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was a cool experience and you do make you know, a lot of friendships. I found a guy who was hallucinating out on the trail. I just kind of found him. He was, it was, you know, two or three in the morning. We were at like 9,000 feet climbing up this mountain and he was just out of it. And I kind of helped him out of the trail, got him to the next aid station. And when I finished his wife came, I didn't know who it was. Some woman came up and hugged me. She was like, thank you so much. Like that was my husband. (laughs) And so, you know, everyone's helping each other out there, which is, you know, really cool. And I had plenty of people helping me as well, uh, along the way. And, you know, people sharing knowledge because you really can't get through that. Um, solo, it really helps to have other people out there. That's incredible. Yeah, it was fun. Um, so the topics of what we talked about were, uh, an article that you wrote, uh, that, you know, talks about likability or, or likership. <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah. also talked about being politically engaged as a leader, as a, as a positive trait. Is there anything that you've you've done or studied since then that you wanted to be able to add on? Yeah, so we actually, uh, myself and my co-authors, we published a book, uh, Political Skill at Work, How to Influence, Motivate, and Win Supports. And, uh, you know, this is the idea, and, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit in the uh, rest of the podcast, but this is the idea that political skill is something that probably all of us have to a certain extent, but it can be trained. And, you know, we found that political skill leads to a lot of great outcomes, like more promotions, higher pay, less stress at work. And, you know, for the five of us who, who wrote the book, we just think it's really important to be able to give people some tips and pointers because there's so many positive benefits to this. And the reality of it is most people don't read academic research because it's horribly Mm -hmm. boring. So we tried to put it in an easily digestible format that people could enjoy, hopefully while they're reading it and get some tips along the way. Awesome. Just one last time before we part. Listen, you don't have to order those chunky cotton tees with flaky screen printed logos that peel off after three washes. Emblem Athletic prints your designs directly into their high quality athletic fabrics so it will never fade and your team looks fresh and kick ass all the time. Go to emblemathletic.com and get started on your custom gear. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share with family and friends and please consider leaving a rating or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at NSTIW Podcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about. 